So this message comes from the book of Malachi, and that happens to be the last Old Testament book. It provides a clear picture of how God views giving. And since so many churches tend to mess up giving, many of us don't have clear views of how it is that we're to give. And so I thought today it would be great if we just went right back to the source and see what God says about our giving. But before we jump in, I want to review this Old Testament timeline. We see this pretty regularly. I like to drag it up here because it's so important that we're reminded of the history of our faith. In fact, it sets the context for this message today. And one of the things that we routinely see as we look at our history is that it involves five major covenants that God made with man. I've put them in blue up there and I've actually listed them off to the left of that graphic. And it's important because what those covenants show us is that we all pretty much, both through our history and each of us individually, we live a roller coaster of our faith. There's times where we're obedient, and then there's times where we're disobedient. There's times where we suffer, and then we repent, and we're restored. But it's this constant up and down. And if you think about, even at creation, we're in harmony with God, living with Him, and then sin comes into the world. And then sin is so bad that God has to eradicate it with a flood. And then, of course, He brings Um, Noah, and he makes this amazing covenant with Noah, and we're kind of back up on top again. But then it isn't just but a few generations, and we slid back down again. The Tower of Babel happens, and God's furious to scatter people to the four corners of the world. And then God reestablishes this covenant, through this covenant, his relationship with his people through Abraham. And things go pretty well with that for a little while. He promises land. He promises to make him a great nation. But then, of course, after a couple generations, they fall back down again. They're enslaved by Egypt. And so God, once again, comes in with another covenant with Moses. He rescues his people from Egypt, but they immediately start to grumble. And there's all kinds of issues with the nation of Israel. And so he puts them out in the desert for 40 years as they're out there waiting to go into the promised land. Well, he finally brings them into the promised land and they continue to rebel. And there's this time of judges, which is really bad. And then they're begging for a king. And so God gives them a king and King David kind of restores the nation of Israel again. And then he makes this promise with David where one of David's descendants is actually going to be the Messiah. So there's this this notion of a Messiah out there that's going to come and he's going to rescue them. And then, of course, as soon as that happens, we get into this time of kings. It's around 800 B.C., and it was a particularly rebellious period. And so what did God do? He gave Israel over to the Babylonians, and they led him off into exile around 700 B.C. This is a time of great suffering for God's chosen nation at the hands of their oppressors. It was also a time when the prophets began to speak of a new covenant. That's that fifth one up there. It was going to be unlike all the others because it was going to be written in hearts. God was going to forgive sins and he was going to remember them no more. And it was all going to be sealed by this coming Messiah. So this is a pretty big deal. This is a new covenant. So in the darkest days of the exile, Israel held out hope for a savior who would rescue them. And then finally, after seven decades as captives in a foreign land, King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon, and he basically ends the exile. Cyrus allows Israel to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. It was a time of relief and hope for the nation. 
as Israel waited very expectantly for this Messiah to arrive to make them a great nation again. But when he didn't come right away, what do you think they did? What they always do. They began to backslide yet again, just like we do. They lost their zeal for God. Their worship became lackluster. They were just going through the motions, and we find ourselves doing that as well. And that's when Malachi comes onto the scene, and he brings this final Old Testament prophecy from God. And Malachi reveals this prophecy using God's voice through this notional dialogue between God and Israel. So it's a unique way in which we receive this prophecy. It's the final word God sends to Israel just before he goes completely silent on them for more than 400 years. And of course, as we learned at Advent, God breaks his silence through John the Baptist, where John the Baptist says, the Messiah is here, and his name is Jesus. And that's basically where we pick up our text today. So let's check out the words Malachi received from the Lord. For I, the Lord, do not change. So this is God's voice. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Now I know what some of you are thinking right now. That's a lot of text. If this guy moves as slowly as he normally does, we're never getting out of here. But trust me, I practiced. We're going to do this. We're going to get through this, all right? First, Malachi records God saying, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So here's Israel. The suffering from the exile is still very fresh on their minds. Sure, the temple has been rebuilt, but once again, they've begun to backslide. They become complacent in their worship. They question whether God has forgotten them. Maybe he's changed his mind about this particular promise of a Messiah. And not trusting God is a major offense to him because God always lives up to his promise. That's just his nature. So God starts out here, I didn't change my mind because if I had, you would have been consumed by now. Remember how tough things were back in that exile? Well, I relented. I brought you back to Jerusalem just like I said I would. And then God reminds them of the covenants that he's made with them over the years. As he says, from the days of your fathers. Of course, he's referring to the likes of Abraham, Moses, and David, meaning the fathers of Israel, those whom God made all those big covenants with. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. God reminds them that from generation to generation, they haven't lived up to their end of things. 
And then God prompts them to come back home to him. He says, return to me and I will return to you. In other words, repent, change, stop rebelling and start obeying. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Whenever we get sideways with God, we must repent. We gotta turn from it. And as simple as this notion is, it's one of the hardest things any of us can ever do. Because just like Israel, we have hard hearts. We struggle to admit that we're wrong. And so we don't often get around to changing our ways. Next, Malachi records God saying, but you say, how shall we return? In other words, Israel asks, what is it that we need to repent of? We just got out of exile. We've rebuilt the temple. We've been waiting on you, God. You can't blame us for becoming a little complacent here. To which God responds, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You see, they still didn't get it. All they could think about was themselves. They were so focused on their tough circumstances And not only does God blame them, but he also accuses them of robbing him. Is that even possible? And so they ask that very question of God, how have we robbed you? Yes, we become a little lax in our worship while we're waiting for this Messiah you keep promising, but how is it that we're robbing you? And God responds in a way that they most certainly didn't expect. He says, in your tithes, and contributions. Or more generally, God's saying, you've stopped trusting in me. You're trusting in yourself again. You withhold tithes and contributions because you don't trust me to care for you. You're trying to care for yourself again. That's what you need to repent of. That's all God ever wanted from any of us. From the very beginning of the Bible, we see it. He wants us to place our trust in him. We say we do. We say we have faith in God. We believe in God. But then our behavior doesn't often match our belief. We trust God that he'll save us on that hour of our death. But we don't trust him to care for us while we're alive. And so, just like Israel, we withhold. We rob God. And then God tells them the truth about why they're in the predicament that they're in. He says, you're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. In other words, this suffering you've experienced, those 40 years in the desert, those 70 years in exile, being oppressed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Persians, it's all because you really never trusted me. You said you did, but your actions didn't align with it. You're rebellious. You don't follow my commands. You don't give as I have directed you to give. And that's why you're living this curse, the whole nation of you. You're all oppressed because of this. And then God tells them what to do next. He essentially says, repent, bring the full tithe to the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. That's what they need to repent of. That's the change that's needed in their lives. And I wonder, is that the change that's needed in ours? You see, the church is God's plan A to carry out his master plan, which is to unite all things in Christ. And there is no plan B. And this is how God sustains his church, through his people bringing a tithe. 
It both demonstrates and builds the church's trust in him. Because ultimately, that's what faith is about. It's placing trust in God that he will do what he says he will do. It's how the church grows. Our trust in him is what facilitates growth in the church. So God essentially is saying here, repent. Do as I have said. Trust me. Bring the full tithe. And then God does something he rarely does, and I love this part. He invites them to test him. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That's what happens when we trust in him. Now, this is not some wonky prosperity gospel that you hear about in many other churches. This isn't a promise that you're going to win the lottery or that the rest of your life is going to be full of nothing but unicorns and rainbows. No, God simply promises to open up the heavens. An allusion to sustaining rain, pouring down, watering the land, filling it with milk and honey. The blessings of God caring for his beloved children as they receive their daily bread, the grace and mercy that's needed to help them get through whatever comes their way on any given day. But not only rain, God also promises to rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. So this, of course, is a reference to those pests out there, locusts that we see in Scripture that so often destroyed the harvest. God's hand will stay that too. He will provide the nutrients needed from the rain and he will protect you from that which destroys all that he is growing. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. That's what happens when we put our trust in the Lord. Everything changes. We don't worry how these provisions come. We just rest in the peace and trust of knowing that they most certainly will. Why? Because God promised, and he simply cannot break his promise. That is the basis for our faith. That is the basis for our trust in him. So we work our tails off, we give our tithe to the Lord, we praise, we give thanks, we live a life of obedience, and we trust him. And when we do that, it pleases God because we're living in step with his will, and he blesses that. How? First, by bringing us into a relationship with him, by virtue of the work of the Messiah that he promised to send, the one who paid the penalty for all of our sins so that we could be forgiven and those sins could be forgotten. Also, he fills us with his Holy Spirit. What an amazing blessing that is. He resides within us. And of course, when we live filled with the Spirit, we begin to see his fruit ripen in our lives. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's why our whole outlook on life suddenly becomes radiant with hope whenever we're born again into a new life in Christ. That's the kind of blessing that he's promising. There's nothing on earth that could ever compare to that. And so through this prophet of Malachi, the Lord invites us to test him. See if he doesn't just open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. Doesn't mean we won't have hardships. There will be many. 
but he will sustain us through them all. And what it means for our church is that we'll all start seeing this end state unfold. And this is the exciting part. That's what happens when God opens up the heavens. That's how he designed us to live, where praise and prayer erupt, where love and joy fill hearts, families are reunited, prodigals come home. So in all honesty, you can have all the lottery winnings you want out there. You can pursue all the great things of this world. Nothing compares to that stuff. That's the good stuff. That's the stuff I know I want to see. Okay, so then what does giving look like? What does it look like to give the full tithe in 2024? Well, back in June, we learned a little bit about this. Paul taught us in the fourth chapter of his letter to the church in Ephesus what he means by this. It basically he wrote, and listen to the word carefully, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And if you want to check that sermon out, it was June 18th, back in 2023. It's entitled Stealing. You can find it online. You can find it on our Spotify. How interesting, though, that he names it Stealing. I can Hopefully you can see the connection here. Paul refers to robbery too. So we have Malachi talking about robbery and we have Paul talking about robbery. He says, stop stealing. Rather, we're to labor, to do honest work with our hands, earn a paycheck so that we have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, so that we can participate in God's master plan. So you see this Old Testament teaching on giving that we see from Malachi is every bit as applicable to today. And Paul's actually confirming it. In fact, we have more than 2,000 verses in Scripture that refer to money. 40% of Jesus' parables deal with money at some level or another. And that's because what we do with our money shows us two really important things. First, how much we truly trust God. Think about that for a minute. That's what the faith, that's what the belief is all about. That's the first thing it shows us. Second, how invested we truly are in God's master plan, his church. Those are two big things that how we approach dollars in our lives actually show us. So I pulled together what we learned back in June when we looked at this the last time. We're just going to briefly review it. First, Scripture says that we're to give out of our first fruits of our labor. Sometimes we can be prone to saying, all right, money comes in, I got all these responsibilities and requirements, and whatever's left over at the end of the month, I'll just chuck it in the box. Or maybe we think about this on a grander scale. Our entire lives, I'm really never going to give anything, but when I die, I'll give a portion of my estate to the church, and that'll just kind of settle things up. But if you're doing that, you're missing out on the blessing of this first fruit, where the paycheck comes in. And it's our privilege because we realize that comes from God. It's all the talents that he gave us, right? That's how, why we're getting paid in the first place. We set a portion aside like he tells us to. And then we live responsibly on the rest of it. Second, Scripture tells us that we're to give in proportion to our income and our wealth. So if you're good at what you do or you happen to be in a profession that makes a lot of money, then you have the privilege of being able to give even more. And that's why a tithe is a percentage of what we make. Now, many people see a tithe as 10%. 
And that's no doubt what the church has taught. We find evidence for that in Scripture. But if you, if you actually go back and look at all the tithes that were required, it was somewhere between 23 and 33 percent. But regardless of the number, that's not important. The principle is the important part, that we're to give in proportion to the income. So that is the principle. The more we make, the more we're able to give. It's our motivation to work hard and to work well. Third, Scripture says we're to give anonymously. We're not to look for any credit for our giving that actually undermines the spirit of our gift. And many of you are very generous people, and you've come to me and said, hey, if there's a need in this church, reach out to me. I'll take care of it, but I do not want any credit for it. We even have a group of people that come in here on Tuesday nights, and they do a bunch of work around the church. And whenever I go to thank them for it, they just disappear. They scurry away. They won't talk to me for weeks because they just want it to remain anonymous. And that's the spirit by which we operate here at this church. In fact, all dollars that are given, I don't know who gives it. And the only thing I know about giving is what I give. And so everybody else, it's just a matter of processing checks. And Marcy handles that. And if you all know Marcy, she's a cipher. That information ain't going anywhere. She's going to keep that tight. Fourth, Scripture says we're to give regularly. It's part of our regular worship. In fact, 1 Corinthians 16 says basically something to the effect that set aside on the first day of the week so that when Paul shows up, we aren't collecting things. And we don't do that in this church, right? We aren't going to run drives and campaigns and capital campaigns. When the money shows up, we'll build those bathrooms out back. Until it shows up, we won't. But we're not going to be shaking people down for that. And that's because we believe when people just give out of the overflow, it just comes in. And that's what I've observed over the last two years since I've been here. This is a very generous church. People give. And when dollars come in, we have the ability to settle up debts and take care of all the things that are out there in our church. So giving is something, though, that has to happen regularly. In fact, look at how Paul describes it in his second letter to the church in Corinth as he describes a church in Macedonia. And I love this passage. He writes, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That gets me every time I read that. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Is that our approach? So what are our next steps towards giving? Well, here are a couple things to consider. First, we should all be constantly praying about how God is calling us to be generous to the church and otherwise in our lives. That is always our first step. We shouldn't be responding to emotional pleas. We shouldn't be responding to hype about some really cool project. That's nonsense. Knock that stuff off. We need to be praying. Where is God calling us to give? It's a very thoughtful process we want to engage in. Second, maybe you've never given anything before, and I get it. It can be hard to part with money, plus everyone out there is trying to scam you, and the church has been pretty bad over the years scamming people. So I totally understand that. In fact, that's why we have a complete transparency policy here. You can check on every single penny that's spent. You want to see salaries? You want, anything you want to see, we encourage you to come on a Tuesday, um, second Tuesday of the month. Our finance team meets. We'll open up gates. Even if you can't make that, just shoot us a note. Come by. Some of you have done that in the past. We'll open the books. We'll let you see everything that is spent in this church. In fact, our finance team actually reviews every month every single transaction and approves to make sure that it's legit. So we want to be extremely good stewards of all giving, and that's because of what this principle says, which is we know 
people are giving, and we want them to have confidence in their giving. Because Scripture is clear, we're called to give. So maybe just start by giving something, could just be a few bucks. That's perfectly okay just to get started because it's not the amount. Remember, it's about the heart of giving. Third, maybe you're already giving. Perhaps move toward a tithe or a percentage of your income. Many people pick 10% as a goal, but again, that's between you and God. Could be 5% to start out. Or maybe if you're already at a percentage or you're at 10% or whatever, at my church back in New York, the pastor encouraged us to every year up at one percentage point. So if you're 10% now, next year it's 11%, then 12%, then 13%. And let me tell you something, that is a really wonderful way to continue to stretch yourself in your faith and in your trust as you progress in years. As you meet more obligations in your life behind you, you have more capability to stretch yourself even further. And what a blessing that is and a privilege when we do that. Because at the end of the day, We've really been very blessed, particularly as Americans. In fact, many people don't even realize this because 50,000 around here, I think the median household income in Beaver County is like 42, 43,000. So $50,000 sometimes doesn't stretch very much and we know it's hard to make ends meet. But across the 8 billion people on this planet right now, if you make $50,000 a year, that puts you in the top 5% in the whole world of earners. So we in America have been extremely blessed but it also, at the end of the day, it's not about the financial side. This is about spirit. This is about our trust in God. It's about the spiritual blessings. We've been born again. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us. We are going to heaven. We've been blessed beyond any measure. And that's where our mindset changes when we're born again and our heart's desire to give out of generosity. And why do we do it? Not for any credit, not for supporting bad causes, but for God's cause, his plan A, to unite all things in Christ. So everything we do with regard to giving is about that phrase up there above the mantle. It's about God's glory alone. 